naturally, we're not thinking about. Naturally, we pray, my kingdom come. Naturally, we look at kings of the world and think that all the power and the glory is there, but Nebuchadnezzar is long dead. Agrippa in the New Testament is long dead. Babylon and Assyria and Rome are long gone, but the kingdom of God remains and will remain on into eternity. But what does this mean to pray your kingdom come? It refocuses us a bit, loved ones. When we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, in prayer we expect to meet with God. Do you come to church today expecting to meet with the Lord? When you pray as a family, do you expect God to meet with you? And as a prayer meeting at church, we expect our lives to be changed. What we need more than anything is fellowship with the Lord. And God works in and through us as we commune with him in prayer, in the name of the risen Christ, with the power of the Holy Spirit present. And then when we hear God and see God answer prayers. We thank him for it. Sometimes we can be like the the lepers who were healed and don't go back to thank God. And we thank him and we keep on praying and we say, Lord, forgive me for my unbelief. We cry out, Lord, richly supply us with your spirit. Lord, destroy Satan and his stronghold. Lord, build your church. That's what we're praying in kingdom-centered prayers as we look at this petition today. There's an urgency here, loved ones. And we want to look at this theme of not only the kingdom of God in the Bible, but then what it means to pray this way. First, the kingdom in the scriptures. When we pray to our Father and his kingdom, we acknowledge that he is king, And that there's a sense in which his kingdom is everything in all creation. He governs all things. When we were driving home last night after the Twins game, three of our boys and I, the storm hit hard. Maybe you remember that wherever you were. It just kind of came and slammed down hard. And we're listening to our favorite weather station in town. They love to talk about the weather, don't they? And we're hearing talk about Mother Nature. And I talk to our kids. There is no mother nature. There is one true triune God who is in control of every thunderstorm and every lightning blast and every politician and every disease and every event of life that happens. Ephesians 1, all things happen according to God's counsel and will. He works them all that way. This is his kingdom of providence and creation. He knows the end from the beginning. The days that we would live were ordained for us before the earth was founded. He knew and loved you in Christ before you existed. That kingdom of power is already here in fullness. So when we pray your kingdom come, we understand that there's no increase or decrease in God's sovereignty. What then does this mean? Well, as theologians have rightly described, there is not only the kingdom of glory, God's providence in all things, but the kingdom of grace. Here's what Kevin DeYoung says. 
the kingdom of God is his reign and rule, as well as the relationship that exists in heaven that is perfect. And it is his redemptive presence coming down from heaven to earth. And that's the theme of the Bible. Do you remember at the Garden of Eden? God's reign and realm and rule with Adam and Eve. They had a personal covenant relationship with God. But because of sin and rebellion, they're kicked out of the garden. Out of the earthly dwelling place of God's kingdom. But then God promises a holy land, kids, as you read the Old Testament. Throughout Genesis, his people are looking forward to go where? From an earthly perspective. The earthly land of Canaan, which it says is flowing with milk and honey. Except if you've been to Israel physically, you know that this is not a land filled with milk and honey. It's very dry. Very hard place to plant and grow things. So that very phrase, milk and honey, reminded them of the Garden of Eden. It pointed them to somewhere beyond Eden. It was never about the promised land. It pointed them to a heavenly country. In those days, God was present with his people in the Old Testament through the tabernacle and the temple. Because of sin, God's people are exiled from the land. The Babylonians and the Assyrians come. But then Jesus in the New Testament appears. The Son of God come from heaven. And now God's presence on earth is not tied to a physical temple or a piece of land in the Middle East. But Christ himself is the temple. Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven, which is the same as the kingdom of God. Same thing. Is at hand. That's what the gospel of Matthew is about. The promise of the covenant of grace. First made in Genesis 3.15. That one would come, a savior, to crush the head of the serpent. Christ is there to destroy Satan and the powers of evil. He is there to come and defeat sin and death itself. And he's there to heal diseases, to cast out demons. And the New Testament tells us the kingdom of God has come in Christ and yet is not fully consummated. We live in an overlap of the ages between the already of Christ's first coming, the not yet of his return. De Young says this, it's like the sun breaking through the clouds, which we saw at the Twins game last night. It broke through and then the clouds came in and the storm crashed. And that's what life is like right now. The brightness of the sun is not yet experienced as it one day will be in the future. So as you read the New Testament, you see Christ tell us the kingdom looks small and impressive right now. The kingdom of grace. But at the end of the age, it will be unbelievably grand and glorious. And it's expanding even now. It's growing even now. So much confusion about this. Do you remember the disciples? And others in the New Testament. They want Jesus to come to cast out the Roman army. Even after Jesus' resurrection, the disciples say to him as he's about to ascend, is it now that you will restore the kingdom to Israel? Even then they didn't get it. Even then they thought it would be earthly and political. 
And Jesus said the violent will try to take the kingdom of heaven by force. But that's not how it works. Christ's kingdom, as he told Pilate, is not of this world. We would never say America is the kingdom of God. Jesus says, do not conflate any particular social or political party or geopolitical or nation state with the kingdom of Jesus. It doesn't advance by human means. It's not of this world. So what then does it mean to pray your kingdom come? Secondly, this is where we'll spend most of our time as we're looking here at how this applies to our lives. How the Lord is teaching us as the family of God now, to pray, helping us pray more fervently. The kingdom of darkness rules the hearts of unbelievers. Sin is called the works of darkness. Satan is the ruler of the kingdom of the power of the air. And those who aren't believers, as we heard in Galatians 5, are not in the kingdom of God. We pray they'll repent and be saved, and enter the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God is closed to the unrepentant, the keys of the kingdom, and open to those who believe. Jesus has come to invade Satan's kingdom, to deliver us from darkness, to bring us into his kingdom of salvation, and entry into the kingdom is not by natural birth, not by geography, not by ethnic heritage. It's by means of the new birth. Unless a man is born again, John 3, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So we enter as the Holy Spirit gives us new birth, as we trust Jesus by faith, and we pray, Lord, convert the lost. Lord, at Emmaus Road, help us look outward to pray for the conversion of those walking in darkness in this community. Lord, convert my unsaved family member. This person might live in your home. It might be a spouse. It might be a kid. It might be an uncle. It might be an aunt. Lord, do a mighty work. Save the children of this church that are marked apart in baptism. We pray that they will never know a day when they don't trust Jesus, that they will grow up loving Christ all the days of their life. Lord, act. Lord, do what you've promised. Fulfill your covenant. That's what we're praying here. The kingdom is found where sinners are converted. To pray your kingdom come also means we have a big heart and a love for the church. The New Testament doesn't know of any sort of person who says they're a Christian and has nothing to do with the church. The church is Christ's body. He is the head. He bought it with his blood. And the church, like the Garden of Eden, like ancient Israel, is the place where the law and the gospel are proclaimed, where the heavenly realities of the kingdom to come are breaking in right now. The Holy Spirit rightly belongs to the future, and the Spirit has come and invaded our hearts now so that we have a taste of that reality as God's people now. To pray your kingdom come is to understand the relationship between the kingdom and the church. DeYoung helps here. Distinctions matter. 
The church and the kingdom of God are not identical, but they cannot be separated. And in this life, they largely overlap. Here's what he says. Think of the church as a kind of outpost or embassy of the kingdom. Children, an embassy is a national outpost in a foreign land. So the U.S. embassy in Nigeria. The embassy, while it wants to dwell peacefully in the foreign land, exists to advance the interests of another country. So also the church, dwelling on earth in various nations all over the world, from America to Pakistan to Australia to Indonesia, exists to advance the interests of another kingdom, a heavenly kingdom. So the church is the place where you expect to see the values and the rules of the kingdom honored and upheld. The church is supposed to be the outpost of heaven on earth, but we're not there yet. The church is filled with sinners, so it's a mixed multitude, isn't it? In this age, sheep and goats, wheat and tares, wise and foolish are living side by side, visible and invisible church. There's a distinction, aren't there? Between some who say they profess faith, but actually don't possess it, and those who by the grace of God profess and possess faith in Jesus, the King. That leads to another question. What are some of the marks of a healthy church? If we're praying here, God's kingdom come, God's church grow, mature, expand across the world. What should a church look like? A church is committed to God's mission for the church. Committed to worship God as God designed. That's what we looked at a bit last week. So one question to ask here at Emmaus Road. How does God see us as we worship together? Is he delighted because he is being enthroned on the praises of his people, Psalm 22. Does our worship reflect a growing awareness among us of the darkness from which we've been redeemed? Do we have an overflowing thankfulness to God because a holy God has called us to be his children for the sake of Christ? Questions for us to ask as a church. A healthy church is a praying church, praying for maturity, spiritual strengthening, praying for reformation and gospel renewal, praying for the Spirit to come in power and revival. It was 1930. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a pastor in and around London. There was a man named Harry Wood an older gentleman, who said, I sought satisfaction in all sorts of different ways in my life. I was all wrong. He came one day, heard the preaching of the gospel, and by the Spirit of God was converted. Harry Wood was involved in the life of the church in London, or in Sandfields, actually, near London. Lloyd-Jones says, he was surprised at the spiritual perception of Harry Wood, who was advanced in years, but was such a young Christian. No one was more fully involved 
in the life of the church than Harry would, especially at the prayer meeting. After one memorable prayer meeting, Lloyd-Jones says, he was surprised when Harry Wood expressed his disappointment as he left the meeting. Lloyd-Jones says, what's wrong? Harry Wood said, it had been his prayer that he should be allowed to go home, straight home, from just such a meeting. Fast forward to early 1931. Harry Wood opens the prayer meeting. He reads and prays from John 17, the high priestly prayer of Christ. He prayed with such glorious unction, filled with the Spirit, that Lloyd-Jones felt that he had heard nothing like it. He said, I thought this man was more in heaven than on earth. When Harry Wood stopped, he went to take a seat in the front row. Lloyd-Jones heard heavy breathing and opening his eyes, had only just time to catch the beloved Harry Wood as he fell to the floor, dead. The death of Harry Wood was one of the events that marked the beginning of an extraordinary spiritual stirring. Harry Wood went to be with the Lord. Harry Wood went to his home in heaven. And the church seemed stirred by the consciousness of the presence of God among them, including Lloyd-Jones himself. Loved ones, we expect to meet God when we come to pray. We expect to be changed. We expect the Spirit of God to be there, as we expect the Spirit of God on Sunday morning. We pray for each other. We pray for the church family through our church directory. And if you struggle, like we all can, Jonathan Gibson has written a great devotional called 31 Days of Prayer in what's called Be Thou My Vision. The title is Be Thou My Vision. Get it, open it up, and it may help you like it's helping me pray for you and for the glory of God and the kingdom of God as a church. What does a healthy church look like? Fellowship. A healthy church where the kingdom of God is growing is a community of people that love each other, that together repent and forgive one another, that serve each other with the gifts God has given, that grow as disciples together in the word, that keep no record of wrongs, that die to bitterness. What did one person say? Bitterness is that poison that I hope secretly to inflict on someone else, but it's actually killing me as I'm meditating on it. Lord, forgive our sins. Help us to forgive each other. Help us to have a nurturing, loving environment here where people are drawn to us and say, surely God is in this place. There's something here that I can't explain. It's the Lord's grace, the gospel of Christ, and the unity of the believers in Christ. Your kingdom come. A gospel fellowship is where we are sorrowful yet rejoicing. We have resilient hope. We have sound doctrine. The Spirit of God is here. The beauty of human relationships, pointing to the beauty of our triune God. Not a place of shame and anxiety, but forgiveness and grace and repentance and new obedience. That's what your kingdom come looks like. 
It also looks like the church has throughout history. It's covenantal. A healthy church sees that God works through his covenant promises from generation to generation. The church is generous in time and talent and treasure. All these are ways of describing sanctification, aren't they? That as we grow together, we see the fruit of the kingdom of God. Romans 14. The kingdom is not meat and drink, meaning it's not physical stuff. It's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. We are praying for the personal reign and authority of Christ in every one of our hearts. That's one thing to pray for each other this week in the church directory. That we may increasingly love Christ and each other. Seeking his priorities. When we do that, we blossom. Because you and I were made to glorify and enjoy God. You're made to serve and enjoy each other. Some of our kids were trying to put their seatbelts together in the back seat recently. And that can be kind of annoying. And tempers can kind of flare. And I saw kind of tempers flare and I see my own heart there more than I see theirs in terms of anger sometimes in my need for grace. And after one of our sons helped the other son, I turned around and said, you know, God made you and me to serve each other. So rather than being frustrated with helping your brother with a little seatbelt, realize the love of Christ compels us not to live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and for each other. That's a small thing. But that's what we're called to, to live for each other, to serve one another. Your kingdom come means we live for God's glory now. John Calvin said, it's the task of the church to make the invisible kingdom of God visible. Here's R.C. Sproul. We do that by living in a way that we bear witness to the reality of the kingship of Christ in our jobs, our families, our schools, our checkbooks. Because God is king over every sphere of our life. So every day of our lives we pray, Father, there are areas of sin in my heart that aren't under Jesus' authority. I lay my life open before the king. May your kingdom be established more and more and your reign more and more in my heart. It's a prayer of repentance and commitment. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Not if my schedule works out, then I'll shoehorn it in. No armchair, kind of Monday morning quarterback, sit back and... No, seek first the kingdom of God, loved ones. This is by the Spirit of God, changing our loves and motivations and desires. This means we loosen our grip on this present world. Your kingdom come. My life is not in this world, ultimately. My citizenship is in heaven, from which I await a Savior, the Lord Jesus. Humility is a part of this prayer. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs and theirs alone. We saw that in the Beatitudes. The proud 
those who are not poor in spirit can never have membership in the kingdom of heaven unless by the grace of God there's repentance. Praying your kingdom come means I pray that Satan's kingdom will be destroyed. Did you catch that in the catechism today? So the powers of Satan and darkness, we are praying, will be cast down. We are praying for the destruction of those who oppose Christ's church. We pray for their conversion. And if they're not converted, that they will be thwarted from what they are attempting to do. Ephesians 6. Take the armor of God with all prayer and keep alert and persevere. Loved ones, David Strain puts it wonderfully. We are marching into a war zone, calling on the commander in chief to send reinforcements, meaning we are calling on Jesus to keep his promise, to build his church, that the gates of hell, sin and death and Satan would not prevail against it. So prayer is not like an optional thing where you call the pizza guy when you're worn down and just don't know what to eat. And Okay, I'll just call him up and the pizza will show up and I'll pray and I'll turn on this. No, no, loved ones. Prayer, Strain says, is a wartime radio. We cannot do without it. It is designed for use on the front lines of battle. Well, the enemy's bullets are flying around. The more we are aware of this, the spiritual war zone, the less we will neglect prayer by the grace of God. And Strain says, I doubt there would be so many moral and spiritual casualties of Satan's assault if we were aware of this. We pray that the Lord would win against our sinful flesh as well, the enemy within. As Lincoln Duncan says, we have seen the enemy, and it is my indwelling sin. We pray that God would build the church. People use that language of building the kingdom. We don't build it, right? God builds it. We don't advance it. God does, but God uses means. He uses prayer and preaching and evangelism and church planting in Pakistan and the Bible being translated into languages of all the tribes and tongues of the world. God builds his kingdom through those means. So when we pray, your kingdom come, it's a missionary prayer. God, may your name be hallowed in Japan. May your kingdom come in India. May your gospel go forth, and may you send forth workers into the harvest. It's a prayer for the Great Commission. One person says, Christianity today is more global than at any time in history. There is tremendous growth in the kingdom, in Latin America and Africa and Asia. The church is stronger in the southern hemisphere today than the north, stronger in the east than the west. Missions is from everywhere to everywhere, from every nation to every nation. Nearly 70% of missionaries today are from the non-Western world. God is building his kingdom. And prayer is God's way of bringing our priorities 
into line with his priorities. God wills to make great things the consequences of your prayers, loved ones, when our prayers are in line with his purposes. God, help us here. Help us look out to the neighbors around us and love them. Help us to practice hospitality. Help us to pray for many to come and trust Jesus and worship the name of Christ. This is a missionary prayer. Prayer, Eric Alexander says, is the primary method for missions. Prayer is the fuel of missions. Do you remember William Carey, India, late 1700s, a missionary? His sister, bedridden for years, spent hours each day interceding for the ministry of her brother and others in India, reminding us that ministry is ineffective without an untold number of invisible and often unrecognized prayer warriors. We value prayer as a church. Our work here is not yet done. Mothers, you know how you hear or you say or others say to you, a mother's work is never done. A believer's work is never done here because God's work is never done until, finally, third, the kingdom comes in all its consummation, the kingdom in the future. The kingdom of God is the heavenly world breaking in now. It is from heaven and it is to heaven. The goal of the kingdom is the new heaven and the new earth. And as the Holy Spirit has come into our hearts, you possess by faith in Christ all the kingdom has to offer. Eternal life, forgiveness, assurance, comfort, peace, Love, righteousness, you have that by faith in Christ now. That's what our hearts long for. To be given the kingdom is to be given God as your father, Christ as your elder brother and king. We have the spirit of Christ, and yet we groan. Why do we groan? Because we wait for the day when the kingdom of God will be finally and fully established. We pray with urgency right now amid marriage problems and health difficulties, among issues at work and ongoing afflictions where pressure is weighing in on us and trials that go on months and years. We pray your kingdom come in the hope of glory. We're not defeatist. We're not pessimistic. We have a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. This is a prayer of hope for something better. That today we would be resilient in hope in the gospel and that Christ would come. Do you see that word come? Your kingdom come. A decisive time in the future when the kingdom comes in. This is not utopia. You know what that word utopia means? Utopia means not a place. This is not utopia. This is reality. When the king comes, the kingdom is set up, and the public manifestation of the king takes place. 
It will be physical and visible and sudden and glorious and triumphant. It is the awareness of that reality that changes our lives by the Spirit. Now. 1 Corinthians 15 says there's an order. Christ will rise as the first fruits. Then at his coming, all who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. He will deliver the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Then he will hand over the kingdom to his Father that God may be all in all. The last curtain will fall on human history. The sky will be rolled up as a scroll. The king will come and take center stage. And we are praying right now for Christ's return. Your kingdom come. The consummation of the kingdom. The new heavens and the new earth. When all the kingdoms of this world end, the kingdom of heaven will never end. It cannot be shaken. It is firm. It is established. And we will reign with Christ forever and ever. On that day, it's too late to enter the kingdom. You need to enter the kingdom today. Do you trust in Christ? Do you love the Lord? By grace, through faith in Christ, are you in the kingdom? Do you know the blessings of it? Amidst the struggle, amidst the groaning, do you know the joy that comes by being united to your Savior? Loved ones, Jesus shall reign. The kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen.